It's all the podcast. The podcast is just Connor and Bryce being the best C++ buds ever. So at the risk of making this uh, a Fortran episode... Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode 6, recorded on December 26, 2020. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host Bryce, we talk about part 1 of our 2020 retro, but we mostly end up talking about Fortran. I've been thinking about, you know, first first of all, I have to say, the editing the last episode was was a blast. The last, I don't know, this is, I don't, it's bad, it's... I don't know if this is bad, but I just like I loved listening to the last episode, even though I was on the last, I'm on all the episodes. But um, like I learned, I learned stuff last episode, and uh, also listening to my like how excited I get. I I don't think I realize like how excitable I am. Um, yes, you you definitely do not realize how excitable like, you are. Like I I sound like a little kid. Um, like when yeah when when uh, when I was like oh I'll just I'm gonna reveal the big secret like it's it's a bit silly cause, oh uh... you're, buddy you're you're you've just forced me into embarrassing you because now I gotta tell the C plus plus now Sean parent story so for for those who do not know Connor is a very big fan of Sean Parent who is uh, one of the C plus plus luminaries who frequently talks about um sort of elegant algorithm design, I'll say. And uh, the first C++ Now conference that Connor and I were at together, which was about four or five months after I met Connor, and this was the one where going into this conference, I was telling you your talk was going to win all the awards, and you're like, nah, it's not going to happen, and then you won all the awards. But we're walking back from... So the, the conference is in Aspen, Colorado, so it's at this little hotel resort, um, and you often you get you go into the town for uh, for dinner or for lunch and then you walk back and um, it's it's not a it's not like a five minute walk it's like you know a 10 20 minute walk so you chat with people on the way back and so I remember there was a group of us that was walking back and Connor was there and I didn't hear the full context of the conversation but I know that the word Sean parent was mentioned and then Connor let out a yelp that sounded like the squeal of an excited 12-year-old schoolgirl. That was just his guttural reaction to the idea that Sean Parent had entered into this conversation. I don't even re- I recall I recall all of those walks back and forth. I do not recall uh, squealing. Um, but I mean, that's, that's but it's not out of you, character. Surely you recall me telling this story subsequently to lots of people. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Well, this this ties into a sort of the the meta point that I was I was going to make sort of at the beginning um, of the episode is that we we have never and, and this is true I think of almost every podcast I've ever listened to um, except for maybe a couple. Uh, at no point do podcasts ever really state like their goals. Um, uh, you know, I think we have a goal. Yeah, that's the thing is that we don't currently have a goal. Um, but like post listening to last episode, I feel like implicitly we have a goal. Uh, and that's I think it's like two things. But, but like this is we can we can just uh, what do they call it? Blue sky this on the episode 
or, you know, this is whatever people are listening to it. It's one, uh, you know, our podcast is just about like two super excited, passionate people, uh, you know, talking about whatever they're excited about with, you know, with respect to tech. Um, but then also... I definitely agree with that. And so that's that's our primary thing. Um, but then I, I guess I didn't really have an expectation that I would be, like, actively learning things while on the podcast. Um, and that's like, like when, uh, specifically when you sort of, you, uh, you know, you, one of the things was like, you asked, you know, do you know the one language, the ISA language that is, uh, you know, internationalized? Um, like I had no idea. And that's like, I don't, it's, it's, it's not like a super, like, it's not going to change my life, but like, I just, I love learning stuff like that. And there's been a bunch of other instances. Um, you know, I almost on every episode, actually, probably I've learned something, you know, when we talked about the, you know, esoteric data structures, I, I had never heard of a ternary search tree um, and sort of walk, yeah. walking through uh, the implementation and sort of figuring that out. Like, I love learning stuff. Um, and also, I just I love uh, sharing my enthusiasm for stuff. And I, I guess that's the thing is, I guess, like listening to the last episode while editing it, um, like I, I, I know I'm an excitable person. I just I guess I guess I don't. I don't, I don't real, I, it's not often that you're listening to your own voice, um, while you're explaining something that you're excited about. And I just, uh, when I was like listening to that part, I was just like, Jesus, like I need to calm down. Um, <laughs> um never calm down, Connor, never calm down. I definitely, I think I've definitely learned things too. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're. You're constantly teaching me new things about APL. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to get out of this podcast without uh, doing some APL programming. Yeah, but uh, it's it's uh, it, it's it's always interesting for me because you are. I think out of the two of us, you are the more inherently curious one, and um, it's nice because I don't have to be as curious as you. I just get to get these regular dumps of. Um, excitement about some new thing you've discovered, and uh, it saves me all of the uh, all of the legwork <laughs> of being a curious person. Well, so and so this was the thing. This is sort of this all ties back. With, so you mentioned Sean Perrin, um, and this all ties back to something you you asked two episodes ago when we were sort of we had our quasi debate about programming languages and how many you should learn. Although very quickly it it, it didn't didn't it it was no longer a debate and it was just us agreeing on things. Um, you asked at one point, like, why? Uh, why do you like – like, it was sort of uh, a two-part why. Like, why do you like learning programming languages? And why do you want to solve advent of code prog- problem- problems in APL? Um, and, like, honestly, since – and I, I paused and I, I gave some answer about um, how Haskell changed the way I thought. And then APL, you know, if, if Haskell changed the way I thought by an order of magnitude, APL, it's two orders of magnitude. But like I've I've really been trying to like reflect on like why why do I get so um, so excited about like learning things like it's it's actually like it's a very good question because you'd think after a certain period of time like you would you know you you sort of learned all the things um, and and one of the things that I've I've upon reflecting on that question is that I've realized um, like the experience of watching certain people give talks and certain people share their passion and enthusiasm for like what it is that they're talking about um for me is like intoxicating um like like i can i can pinpoint um timestamps in talks 
where like uh, specifically, you know, one of the best moments is in a Sean Parent talk called uh, Generic Programming that he gave at Pacific C++, I believe in 2018 or 19, um, where he is talking about um, basically like the evolution of Alexander Stepanov and how watching his evolution, like Alex, like so Sean Parent watching uh, Stepanov's evolution, like how that impacted him and how that like, it was inspiring for him to want to write code in, in like the fashion that Stepanov was learning to write code. Um, and obviously, like we've mentioned, I'm a big John Parent fan, but like listening to Sean talk about like the way that Stepanov influenced him um, for me is like, it's the equivalent of like other people watching sports and like seeing, you know, Michael Jordan in basketball, like, you know, jump from the free throw line and, and do a slam dunk or, um, I, I used to be a huge soccer fan, and I'll clip this in the show notes. In the 2010 World Cup, uh, I believe it was the quarterfinal. So I'm I'm half Dutch. My 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 last name Hoekstra is a is a Dutch name from the Netherlands, and uh, and so uh, I'm also half Irish. But I, I like to say that I associate more with the Dutch side because they have a better soccer team. Um, <laughs> um, but but. The one thing about the the Dutch soccer one one one, one day uh, we'll tell the story of how Connor claiming to be half Irish nearly got him in trouble when we were in Ireland. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that we'll save that for another episode. Um, but yes, I I, I I like to watch the the World Cup because it uh, it only happens once every four years and it only happens for a couple weeks, so it doesn't take up uh, too much time. And uh, in the quarterfinal. Uh, Uruguay was playing uh, Netherlands, and uh, a defender, uh, Giovanni Van Bronckhorst, he scored this goal. It was just miraculous. Like it was from way outside the 18-yard box, up into the top corner, off of the crossbar. And this is 2010, so I'm in my uh, second year or third year of university. And I remember I was um, watching this, I believe, with my sister in the common room of the residence that I lived in. And I just I went absolutely nuts like this because we went up one nothing, and uh, Holland is the best team to have never won the World Cup. It used to be a toss up between Spain and the Netherlands, uh, but then Spain won it in 2010 uh, against us in the final, which is very sad. Um, so, so such a large portion of our international audience is going to be in some way offended <laughs> by this discussion of soccer. Yes, yes. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably, there's a big portion of that are offended from Europe that I'm calling it even soccer because it's football over there. Um, but I just, the, the goal was amazing. I went absolutely like crazy. And uh, like, so the, the way that people get excited about sports and like moments like those where you're, you're just seeing an individual um, do something amazing is like the same way I feel about like watching uh, programming talks, which like probably sounds absolutely ridiculous. Um, but it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's awesome to see that. And like, I think a large part of like my enthusiasm and passion is like, is chasing that. Like I now want to do like, I want to have the effect and the impact that like Sean Parent has had on me on other people. Um, and I think like learning to like when my mind uh, is learning things and it, it, it completely is bent in like a 90 degree or 180 degree angle, um, that gets me excited because my thought is like, oh, wow, like if this is having this impact on the way I think, like this will translate into some like amazing moment where, you know, whether it's on a podcast now or in some future talk, um, 
I can I can show people like look at the elegance of this solution that like I I at one point I had no idea was possible. Anyways, we've we've been ra- or I've been rambling now for uh, <laughs> I don't know how many minutes and we haven't even gotten to the the topic of this podcast. But the point is, is I just I, I like I like uh, the idea of the sort of the the goal of our podcast being uh, to share our excitement slash enthusiasm and then also along the way for us to learn things and then hopefully the listeners learn things as well. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely think we 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 went into this having this implicit goal that there or we went into this with the assumption that there was some value not just to either one of us individually sharing ideas, but like that our 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 combined interactions, like our interactions together, produced this like enthusiasm and an excitement that needed to be shared with the world that could inspire people um and this yeah. this actually will so this will come up so the the idea for today's podcast was sort of men- mentioned at the tail end of last week's was um to sort of reflect on uh 2020 and to um to you know talk about the highlights or you know what was the top five things obviously you know we should uh, we should start this by saying obviously 2020 um, in all serious was a wreck of a year. And, um, I think both I, Bryce will, you can, you can disagree if you, if you want to, but I'm, I'm sure you are in agreement that we are both in uh, very privileged, uh, situations where we have not, um, we have not been impacted work-wise, uh, by any of the, uh, what should we call them? Things that have happened in 2020. Um, and so, uh, well, I, I think I, I think we should we shouldn't say that we haven't been impacted because there are people in tech who this has not been very easy for. Even even there are those people who are in a very privileged position, but it, it may still be difficult for them. And we shouldn't right. make that's, make, that's true. make we shouldn't make that seem like that's a small thing. Um, but you know, obviously. Many of us who are in tech have it a lot better than right. many people in other um, industries. You know, my 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 dad um, is a theater director. He's run small nonprofit theaters his entire career. Where um, in a bad year, he has to like choose not to, to pay himself. Um, and this is uh, he's retiring next year, so this is going to be his second to last season. And they had to basically cancel their whole season. And uh, I was just talking with him yesterday about sort of the impact that it's had on the performing art that the pandemic's had in the performing performing arts industry. And um, his theater was lucky; you know, they had the money to be able to um, uh, withstand this. But a lot of these small community theaters are just, you know, he said something like ninety nine percent of you know the the. Um, the actors uh, and performing arts union in the United States are, you know, currently out of work or something like that. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this pandemic is definitely hurting uh, some folks a lot more than it's hurting us. Yeah. So I I think that's a, it's a great point. I shouldn't say it, it doesn't impact us. Uh, Relatively speaking, um, it impacts us less. And I, I will say like neither of us have uh, dependents, um, we don't have kids, and I, I think you know there are a large number of people in in technology that that do have families and and kids, and um, so so I just we are about to talk about um, the highlights of 2020 and sort of try and pull some positive things out, uh, but I just I don't want to do that uh, without sort of acknowledging that 
um, 2020 has been a wreck of a year, and uh, I'm I'm very, very, very hopeful that 2021 will turn will turn around. And um, yeah, uh, so so. <laughs> well, well, I I actually I think one of the highlights for me of 2020 um, has been how so I I I'm very involved in programming language standards. Um, I chair the U.S. Standards Committee for Programming Language Standards, and I'm. I'm mostly uh, I'm most heavily involved with the C++ um, standard. Um, I have a, a, a light involvement with the Fortran standard and a very light involvement with the C standard. And um, one thing that I've seen as a highlight of this year has been the resiliency that um, uh, that C, C++, and, and Fortran committees have shown uh in the face of this pandemic um we weren't really set up to be able to work remotely at the start of the year you know the way that all of these programming languages was were evolved was we would meet a few times a year in person um and we do a lot of the work at those face-to-face meetings and um that might that might sound like you know in 2020 and that it may sound like in 2019 you know that's a little bit dated, but you have to keep in mind that that's the way we've been doing things for many years, and there is a great value to to um, face-to-face interactions. Um, and I've been very impressed at how far we've been able to come in switching to uh, 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 working remotely um, in the middle of this pandemic, and I'm very grateful to all of the people, you know, not only the leadership, but also the, just the participants who have really stepped up in this time. Um, and, and I'm very proud of all of the things that we were able to get done this year, despite the pandemic. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I think it's great to see um, C++ and sort of older languages, you know, C, Fortran, C++, they all have long histories. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of newer languages are used to sort of operating more on, you know, uh, generally speaking, GitHub. That's not how every program, new programming language evolves, but a lot of them do. Um, yeah. And it's great to see, like, languages with older histories uh, be able to adapt um, and still make progress. Like, it's, it's going to be great to still get, you know, an update with C++23 and new things in our language in our library and that's awesome um well and one one of the things that i've uh i I saw on a uh sort of a status update on on this um on twitter last week that there's this new thing called uh fortranlaying.org in a related github um uh, org which is it was an effort started about a year ago i think actually just before the pandemic to sort of democratize the Fortran evolution process a little bit. Um, You know, the Fortran has this international standards committee, but the idea here was, hey, let's create this this forum and venue where Fortran users can propose ideas, um, can suggest what our priorities should be, et cetera. Um, and I saw a retrospective on on sort of um, all the good that had generated in the past year. Um, and uh, I, I, I was very, 
very impressed with that. You know, Fortran's a language that was created in the 1950s um, and has regularly released, you know, revisions since then. And it's it's not, you know, I think a lot of people maybe don't have the the best opinion of Fortran, but um, I think a lot of those people maybe don't know what modern Fortran looks like um, uh, and don't realize that it's it's not a dead language. It's a it's a language that's constantly um, evolving. Um, and it's still going strong. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty cool to see um, uh, the all the great things that are coming out of this sort of democratization of the Fortran um, standardization process. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, link this in in the show notes. Uh, this is... It's actually quite impressive. There's, there's yeah. the the top uh, repos on the the GitHub page for the Fortran programming language are FPM, the Fortran package manager, which I had no idea about, and then uh, Studlib. So there's a Fortran standard library. Um, yeah, and it looks like they've got they've got a double digit number of contributors and uh, and and you know you know um, a lot of C people have been looking forward to modules for a number of years. You know, Fortran has had modules for, I don't know exactly how long, but definitely at least a couple of years before C++. Um, I think it's been around since maybe Fortran 2008. Um, but uh, yeah, Fortran has a lot of, like modern Fortran has a lot of features that you might you might not expect. And there's, there's another sort of exciting thing that um, has been going on this year, which is um, one of the things that, our company NVIDIA works on is this project called Flang. Um, and it's not quite sort of ready for its, you know, first release yet. But what Flang is, is it is a for, a modern Fortran compiler um, written in the style of Clang. So it's meant to be um, modular. It's meant to be a, like a library. It's meant to be something that you can use for tooling, something that fits into the um, LLVM ecosystem. Um, and it's written in modern C++ 17. Um, like this, this brand new Fortran compiler, um, is, 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 which is going to be a part of the LLVM project is written in modern C++ 17. Um, and not only that, um, some of you have probably heard of MLIR, which is, um, this new sort of high level IR framework for LLVM, um, it's the, it's the sequel to, uh, to LLVM, basically. It's like Chris Latner's quasi-new project. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's not something that's in place of LLVM. What, what, what MLIR is meant to provide you is a way of building a high-level intermediate representation um, that you can use. For, for example, you can use it um, to, with high fidelity, represent the structure of um, loops, and to do things like uh, loop optimizations that are a lot trickier to do, and just um, if you if you if the only representation of your program you have is LLVM IR, um, and uh, one of the first major users of MLIR has been Fortran. Um, our Flang Fortran compiler is all based around this uh, uh, what's called FUR, the Fortran Intermediate Representation, which is this high-level representation that lets us do. Um, all of the loop optimizations uh, and vectorization that um, makes Fortran such a fast language. So at the risk of making this uh, a Fortran episode instead of a 2020 uh, retro, um, 
do you have because i i'm uh not familiar at all really with fortran do you have any uh sense of why fortran has uh you know you could arguably say it's been the most successful old language like you know it was created in the 50s and is typically quoted as being you know one of the first two languages alongside lisp um and lisp is lisp has also done incredibly well um but do you have a sense of why fortran you know there's many languages like cobol and apl that you know there was an article that we'll link in the show notes a a year ago or so that said you know the top 10 dead languages that you've never heard of um you know small talk was on the list apl was on the list and you know you can leave your angry comments if you're a big fan of those languages but like you can't really say that uh fortran has died like do you have a an idea of of why that is or did it do something right that the other languages did wrong or or do you do you know enough about it to i i i got a theory um it's a very vague theory but i got a theory just off the top of my head and my theory is that um fortran has always been very well positioned to capture a um an important industry and domain fortran's always been a really good language for um numeric and scientific computing and um at at when you know when fortran was first created it was in the 50s and i think at the time there was sort of roughly let's say two categories of computing there was sort of business-oriented computing, the sort of things that languages like COBOL were designed and good for. Um, uh, things that are, I think, similar to what we think of as like data analytics today. Um, uh, you know, COBOL was the language that you'd use um, to, you know, if you if you had some database of customers and you wanted to get some some generate some form letter for each of them or 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 um perform some query on your uh you know the list of all the customers that you had um whereas fortran was always sort of a language for these american scientific computing and that's always been an important um uh use case and application and um it's it's always been used in this space where the priority has been on the um the science where fortran's always been a tool that's been used um you know when you're a computational science there's a when you're a computational scientist you're you're really a scientist first and a programmer second um and and so i think there may have been more of a desire within the um numerics and scientific computing community to stick to stick with and evolve the tool that they knew instead of creating a new tool whereas somebody who's a computer programmer first might have a greater interest in um switching to a new language um and and that that sort of that that user base of numeric and scientific computing um has always been a constant um uh since you know said the start of computing um it's evolved a bit over the years but i think that's a large chunk of it i also think that that fortran is a language um 
is quite well designed. It has very powerful built-in um, arrays and not just one-dimensional arrays, but multi-dimensional arrays um, and uh, then expressions and operations on those arrays. It's very well suited for the domains where it is used um, of, you know, uh, scientific computing, simulation, etc. It's a really good fit. Um, and if you're a domain scientist, it's a fairly natural language to go and learn. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, we, we could do a whole episode on that, I'm sure, and, and learn more about that. Um, out of, out of languages of that era, the one in which I'm really the expert is, is more COBOL, um, which is, you know, still around, but not in the same way that Fortran is. Yeah, it's, no, it's interesting to, um... To think about, like, uh, Fortran is not a DSL. Uh, it's not a domain-specific language. Yet, it is, like, a domain-targeted language. Like, it is, like you said, it's it's specifically designed with scientific compute in mind. Um, and I'm not sure, really, you can say that about many programming languages. Like, so that that is... That's very interesting, like that response. Yeah. And it sort of it, it makes sense in my head that uh, a domain targeted language, which many languages are not, like, um, and that's that's another thing is I guess like sort of Erlang is um, is another language that has uh, to a certain extent lived on uh, in the form of Elixir, and I believe many telecom companies that require extremely fault-tolerant, scalable systems. Um, are They're still built in Erlang. If I'm not mistaken, like WhatsApp, uh, which got acquired for, what, $19 billion? It was the, the company with the highest, you know, per employee. Um, like, I think they had 30 employees or 55 employees or something. And, and the per employee price was like, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, they famously used Erlang to build their infrastructure. Um, and, and Erlang, you could say, is also like a domain targeted, like they target, uh, although can you call fault tolerant systems and like scalable systems like that a domain? Maybe not. Um, but like uh, arguably you could even extend that to C++, you know, it sort of gets less away from the domain and more for, uh, use case, but like, you know, C++ and C, those languages are, you know, where you can't have latency, you know, you know, people say, oh, garbage collection is the future. I'm not ever going to use a language that doesn't have GC. Yet there are certain applications where you you can't you can't have that. It's not acceptable. Um, you know, for instance, plus you I, need a language to write the GC in. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if I'm listening to a song, I don't want it. It's so irritating if it skips. You know, at some point, it's yeah. it's it's just like any anybody that's been listening to a song where it's sort of, bloop, um, it's it's awful. Uh, so you're, you're not going to write you're not going to write some um, some audio. Uh, program in, in some GC language that has a risk of that. Um, but anyways, it's... It, a, lot, a lot of the early programming languages were more targeted at specific use cases. You know, COBOL was a language that was created for a specific domain. Fortran was a language that was created for a specific domain. A lot of languages that were created after that were not targeted at a specific and when i say domain here i don't mean like systems programming or like back end versus like front end i mean like a um uh 
an, an, an actual end user application, you know, scientific computing or business computing, etc. Um, I think a lot of languages that were created after that, you know, first set in the 50s and 60s were more general purpose languages or they were, they were targeted, you know, at, be, at um, uh, sort of how high or low level they were going to be, but they, they weren't aimed at suiting the needs of a particular domain. Um, and so I think that's probably a good chunk of why languages like uh, uh, Fortran have such longevity because um, they, it was built from the ground up to suit a particular need and there weren't a lot of alternatives. Um, the only thing that I think has really come close to supplanting Fortran has been Python. Um, Python has become the, the, you know, the replacement tool if you're doing scientific or engineering commun- uh, computing. Um, but in, in, in HPC, uh, Fortran has only really started being supplanted by other languages in the past 10, 20 years. That is, yeah, it's, it's definitely food for thought because another thing about Python that people don't realize, like Python is viewed as sort of a newer language, like alongside, uh, you know, Rust and Swift and Elm, etc. Yeah. But Python is actually an older language. It, it was created around the same time C++ was back in the 90s. You know, C++ has a longer history from before the 90s. Um, and a, a lot of certain talks in, this, in the Python community um, highlight that really the, the, you know, the curve and the hockey stick, you know, of, of the popularity of Python has been driven by um, the, the data science and sort of uh, machine learning and um, like the, the balloon and the ecosystem of libraries that are NumPy and Pandas. Um, yeah. That has really... But, but Python wasn't designed from the ground up for that, right? It was not, Python, no. Python, yeah. But so that, that's, that's one of the, uh, the creator, Wes McKinney of, of Pandas, has claimed in his talk and has showed sort of numbers for that, you know, Python, it was, it was a, you know, a language that was popular enough, but it's, it, it was not, you know, in the top five or, you know, ranked as number one or number two on a lot of these charts. And if you look at sort of the numbers and the adoption of certain libraries, uh, you could argue that, uh, you know, a large uh, contributor to the, you know, extreme popularity of Python has been sort of the focus on, uh, like you were saying, the the scientific compute and you know NumPy, NumPy and, and pandas yeah. and uh, Scikit-Learn and the whole ecosystem of libraries that are now available in Python for p- people working in those domains. So it's it's interesting to think that you know uh, trying to design a language potentially you know a, a more successful uh, uh, trajectory is to choose a a target domain and focus on that and then really like develop those the libraries and the ecosystem around that domain. Um, instead of trying to become like a general purpose language that's used for everything. Yeah. And I mean, if you're trying to design a general purpose language, you know, like let's say that you and I were building a, a new programming language that, that wasn't targeting a particular domain. In our, like the first few things we would do, like, you know, we, we'd, we'd look at, you know, what should we be working on? What should we be focusing? What should our priorities be? We wouldn't be prioritizing features that were specifically only going to enable this one domain of users would right. be like, nah, we got to, that's like a version five feature. We got to focus on these other things first. Um, 
And, and so what that means is that for a general purpose language, like something like Python, yes, eventually it can grow to a scale where it has a rich enough ecosystem, a rich enough set of features that, that um, a dedicated you know, ecosystem pops up within the wider Python ecosystem for that particular use case. Um, but that requires a greater scale, um, a greater maturity. Whereas if, you're, if, you're, if you go in from the start and you say, our language is going to focus on th- doing this thing well, um, then that, that lets you focus better. Um, and I, and I, I think really, I, I think that's been a large part of, of uh, what's made Fortran successful. And, and, you know, again, to go back to that, to, you know, the mindset in the 50s, I think, when, the, when languages like Fortran and COBOL were created, there wasn't yet a notion of this general purpose programmer. There, there were the notion of these people who needed to use these tools in their work. Um, and um, in certain domains, you know, that's, that sort of remained true to this day. Um, if you're a, a computational scientist, um, uh, you, your, your priority is the you know, the science and the, the language is just a tool. And um, that's something that's sort of built into, into a language like Fortran. So we, we took the risk and <laughs> it has sort of turned into a Fortran episode. Uh, Fortran will definitely have to go in the title of this episode. Um, and that is where we will end part one of our 2020 retro episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for part two and happy new year.